He has compassion. Jesus brings words of love, exhortation, encouragement, the prophetic um, words of knowledge because of compassion. He sees Nathaniel um, sitting under the fig tree, and um, his brother calls him and says, I found the Messiah. And uh, Nathaniel comes over to Jesus, and Jesus says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is blamelessness. And uh, Nathaniel says, surely you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, do you believe because I saw you under the fig tree? He has a word of knowledge, and not for the sake of the word of knowledge. The word of knowledge is to draw him closer to himself. And so all the things of the gifts of God is always to bring us close into the affection of the Father. Yeah? I'm hoping that as, as we spend the next while under God's word, we'll feel something of his power rest upon us. Not for the sake of power, but Jesus says, I sit on the right hand of power. The kingdom of God is not one of mere talk or only talk, but one also of power. So we pray and prophesy for confirmation of the presence and power of God, but we teach for transformation, that the word of God established inside of us transforms us as his word works inside of us. So we're going to climb in the next moments, and there's no differentiator between ministry and, and teaching. They're one and the same thing. Jesus said sometimes he had compassion on them and healed them. Other times it says he had compassion on them and taught them many things. Because we know that the word of God begins to transform us. So if you're a first-time visitor, we've been going through passages of Scripture, Genesis, and journeying through Abraham's life. Uh, and today we're on Genesis 21. And so much of... of um, This journey has been trying to converge around the point of the promise that one day Abraham would be a father of many nations. Uh, And he journeys and journeys over years and years and years. And eventually he has the kid. Um, He has the baby as the Haydens are having them, you know, waiting for many years and then kaboom. And so the, the, the topic or headline that I wanted to speak about today is faithfulness, faithfulness. When, when we say the word faithful, I know different people have different triggering thoughts. Some people think of faithfulness and they think, oh, my husband wasn't faithful. It's a, it's a painful thought. Um, other people think of, oh, that, that person in my life wasn't faithful to me. And for others, faithfulness is something that comes part of your, your family. Hey, my family has been faithful to me. My boss has been faithful. It's been amazing. Uh, for many of you, faithfulness is just a bit of a benign word. Like, no one uses it anymore. You don't think about it. It's like, whatever, faithfulness and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then there's a third group, which I fall into, which is, um, oh, it's one of, often you can just think, oh, it's one of God's characteristics. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his faithfulness is with us, yada, yada, yada. And it can be this big brushstroke. But I'm hoping that over the course of uh, this morning, something of the concreteness of his faithfulness will sink inside of our life. And don't worry, the first point, the first point is, is, is long and then it gets quickly shorter. Um, we're going to read through Genesis 21 and uh, we're going to start teasing out the words of God's faithfulness. So here goes. Now the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight years old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son 
in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. They're here, the Anglicans. Thanks be to God. Uh, it was a, I was in an Anglican church for eight years and grew up in an Anglican school, so that's well ingrained inside of me. So here's the first thought. You'll see a couple of slides come up with little yellow highlights. The, the first point is that um, it's God who promises. You'll see three times up there it says, God said. It said, He had promised. said, God had promised. And I know sometimes when you look at text, it can just feel like this white, flat canvas, but as you look at the text with new eyes, certain things pop out. And you're saying that God promised. God said. He spoke. And often what happens is we can look at the promise, we can look at the outcome, we can look at the prophetic word, we can look at the word of knowledge, we can look at the the way out of the situation, and our minds become so focused on the outcome that we require, the promise that we require, instead of focusing on Him who gives the outcome, instead of focusing on Him that gives the promise, instead of him that gives the deliverance. It's so important to know who's backing the promise, not so much the promise itself. Uh, I'm in the world of business, and you'll often have people that go, yeah, no, I'll take, I'll take 15 tons I'm in the meat processing game. Do I look like a butcher? <laughs> Glorified butcher. I'm in the meat industry, and you'll get guys going, no, I'll take 20 tons, and I'll pay you like seven days. And it looks all great, and I think I've been burnt enough in business not to go, yes. So what I normally do is I go and do a, a search on them to see the credibility of their search. Do they have Do they have assets behind them? Do they have track record behind them? Um, and then that gives me the confidence to say, yes, you will deliver on your promise. If it's pick and pay a spa and... Um, all, and ShopRite and those guys, when they put an order in, I'm like, I know I'm going to get my money because they've got track record, they've got assets, they've got backing behind them. And so in the same way, when you hear a promise, when you, when you get an outcome, you've got to see who's behind the promise. And that should be your primary focus, not on the outcome itself. And you'll see a person that got this right was Sarah. There's another passage in Hebrews 11, verse 11, where it says, By faith, Sarah received power, to conceive or to fall pregnant, even though she's beyond the years of being pregnant, because she considered him faithful, who had promised. What did she do? She considered him faithful. Not she considered the promises. She considered the outcome. She considered him faithful. It's a subtle shift, and the shift is a space bar of where your eye focuses on. You've got to look at him, his faithfulness, who he is. One of the things I often do when, when I'm going through trial or when things are difficult and the promise has not yet arrived and things haven't quite worked out the, 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 the way I wanted them to, I just go back and I just think of victory stories, stories of my own, stories that I hear from other people, stories I hear of other people. And one of the stories is one that my father told me. 1940, back in the day in China, uh, it was pre-communism. There was a little boy, and he was one years old. He belonged to a family of seven brothers and four sisters. The oldest brother died in childbirth, and the youngest sister, or the oldest sister, died in childbirth. And he was one of the many in the family. And he contracted an infection or a fever at the age of one. In China in 1940, they really didn't have good uh, medical care or anything like that, and uh, there was a high mortality rate amongst infants. And um, they really tried, the the mother of the child really tried to get him better, went to herbalists, went to Taoist healers, that's uh, a a subsect of Buddhism. And uh, they tried to went to the normal Chinese state doctors, did the whole gambit of things, um, but he just wouldn't get better. 
And um, the Chinese doctor said, you need to take your child to what they call the room of the dead in direct translation, whereas you basically leave people to die, and they literally put you in a room, and you just live out the rest of your days there. And um, fortunately for this mother, there was a missionary doctor from the West that was there. Um, and this doctor that you know, had gone out there said, can I try it? And he, he dunked this little boy in the water, and um, he did whatever, injected him. This little baby started crying. Apparently, he, he couldn't even feel. His, the nerve endings of his body were so damaged, and his body was so damaged, he just couldn't even feel pain. And uh, he started crying, and he slowly began to get healed and grew and grew and grew. But uh, there were no churches. There were no disciples around. And they kind of faded into, into whatever. At the age of 18, his mother pulled this young little 18-year-old boy and the oldest brother, because in the Chinese culture, the oldest brother is a place of high honor and respect, and said to the 18-year-old boy, he said, when you were one years old, there was a man that was a Western doctor. And he was a follower of Yeso, which is Jesus. And he made me promise that if I healed your son, that you nor your son can offer ancestral sacrifices when you die. In the Chinese culture, you put up an ancestral block with your name and you offer incense and oranges and apples and fruit and wine and all this stuff um, as, as ancestral worship. And he said, neither the mother nor the son could do this when they died. And he was like, cool, rad, uh, moved on with life. Uh, when he turned 24 years old, he got on a ship in Hong Kong and stowed away in a container ship, cruised all the way into Durban Harbor, uh, landed with an empty suitcase, a shirt and pants, moved all the way out to Johannesburg, worked on a farm as a laborer, came down to Cape Town, opened a restaurant, gave birth to a son who became a butcher. Hey, you see where the story's turning? <laughs> um, that was my dad. And my dad was a hardened, hardened non-Christian, uh, even up until... Uh, me coming to the world. I went to Moscow some years later. I met an Afrikaans guy from the Inkakak. He led me to Jesus, got baptized in the Spirit. I came back. Six years later, I spoke to my dad about Jesus in a coffee shop, and he gave his life to Jesus. Uh, a couple of years later, he flew back to Hong Kong with me, and we sat around a table with his, his oldest sister that was still surviving, uh, that wasn't a Christian. And my cousin, I found out, was a Christian. And uh, I told her, yeah, no, I'm a Christian. And she said to her sister, and said, look, your little brother, he is a Christian. And my, I looked at my dad, and my dad's like, yeah, you should be a Christian too, to the older sister. And that was that. And while we sat in the airports that evening going back home, my cousin WhatsApp me and said, you won't believe it, but my mother gave her life to Jesus. There's this beautiful thing about the faithfulness of the father. He's faithful across generations. Whether it's my grandmother, my dad, me, he's faithful across geographics, he's faithful across time, because that's his nature. It's his nature. He's the faithful one. I don't know that even in your own lives, there's certain places where you're going, is God going to come through? Well, Rudge, that's your story, but that's not my story. My story is very different. My story is very difficult. My story, like, I don't have your experiences. I don't have that situation. But can I say that you're absolutely right. You don't have my situation. You don't have my outcomes. But you do have the same God. You do have the same Father. You do have the same one. His nature doesn't change. The moment that you trust in an event or an outcome, you go left and right. Because as you see in Abraham's life, he doesn't go in a straight line. He goes left, right, 25 years, left, right. This happens. Other people have, have, have children, but he doesn't have children. And it just goes a zigzag all over the place. 
But then God in his time delivers and brings. I know that with, with Elijah, my little boy, who looks like me mostly. I know he tries to look like his mom, but he still has the black hair and the brown eyes. And um, often what I do is I put him on my lap uh, when he wants to do something that he shouldn't do or doesn't want to do something that he should do. I'm like, Elijah, do you trust Dad? And he's like, yes. Is Dad good to you? And he's like, yes. And I was saying, then listen to Dad. Like, don't do X, Y, and Z, or please do A, B, and C, and he'll go and do it. And I realize I do that now because I know in 10 years' time, when he's not four but 14, it's going to be, Dad, I want to go to that party, and there's drugs, and there's, you know, girls that are going for it, and he's going to be tempted. And I know I'm going to look at him going, Elijah, look at Dad. Do you trust Dad? Is Dad being good to you? Don't go. And we hear the same whisper of the Heavenly Father. Often when there's something I want to do, or I'm so scared, and I don't have the courage, and he goes, Roger? Look at me. I'm like, look at him. He's like, do you trust me? Yes. Am I good to you? Yes. Then don't do X, Y, and Z. Or do A, B, and C. There's a faithfulness. There's a faithfulness. There's a faithfulness. There's a faithfulness. There's a faithfulness over your life. There's a faithfulness. There's a presence of his power that will rest upon you. If you commit your heart not to be running after the promise, but you commit your heart to be after his presence, after seeking his face, you'll feel something about the presence of God coming over the same way he came over David. The Bible says that one thing I ask of the Lord, we sang it, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple, that I might dwell in his house all the days of my life. There'll be a consistency that comes to your life. There'll be a bedrock that you cannot be moved when you're young, other people are going to run left and right for stuff, and you're not going to be moved. And you're going to find the people that are running left and right. Eventually, you're going to realize those things don't work, and they're going to come back to you because they see something of the bedrock of the Father inside of you. He's faithful to you. It's not about your faithlessness. It's about his faithfulness to you. You can trust him. Those that have been disappointed or feel hopeless, you can trust him. There's another place of faithfulness that we see um, God moving. It's the second point. It's all about faithfulness. Often when people preach, they, they, they find it easy to go, hey, this is the main title, and then they preach on it. I give you the main title, I preach on other stuff, and tell you that it reaches back to the main title. It's almost got nothing to do with it. So the second one is about joy. Click. Be joyful in the waiting by considering him who is faithful. Um, you'll have seen these little yellow bobs jumping out. Sarah said, well, Yada, yada, you're going to have a baby, you're going to be pregnant, it's not going to happen. Abram's 100 years old, it's not going to happen. Then it said, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age. I looked at this word laugh, and I thought, okay, lekker, cool, this word laugh and laugh. Karen, turning a couple of pages back, Genesis 17. There's this wonderful place where God comes to Abraham, you'll see it up there. God comes to Abraham, approaches him, says, you're going to have a baby, Sarah's going to have a baby, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham's like, well, she's 90 years old, I'm 99 years old, this ain't ever going to happen. And it says he fell on his face and laughed. I mean, how disrespectful is that? <laughs> Imagine an angel pitches up and says, I will do this for you, like, <laughs> you know, it'd be weird. And that's exactly what he does. He has this incredible level of unbelief in his heart. Flick the page over, chapter 18. An angel comes to like the little vibe of a tent place, and um, 
guys, I don't, want, I don't want things to be heavy. I know that sometimes I preach and, like, you know, it feels like they're weightless, but there is a lightness and a joy about God, especially when you reach this point, you've got to be joyful, eh? So he comes to the tent, and Sarah's sitting there, and um, she overhears them speaking, and she laughs, you know, at herself. And you read it, like, it's a bit weird that they use the word laugh so much. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Um, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Yes, you laughed. No, I didn't. The angel said you laughed. Okay, fine. No, I didn't. Um, you know, and then you flick the page, like two chapters over, um, and you see that the fulfillment of God's promise comes, and she does laugh. But she laughs not in unbelief, but she laughs in belief. To our little English eyes, we see the word uh, laugh twice. To the, the Hebraic mind, they see the word laugh five times. The word Isaac, the name given Isaac, means he laughs. God has the last laugh. Ha, ha, ha. There's somewhere that even in, in the midst of our trial, even in the midst of our difficulty, there's a place where God wants to give us the ability to laugh. And I'm not saying that, that, that you can't mourn. I'm not saying you can't have pain. I'm not saying you, you can't have doubts. But I am saying that amidst all the pain, Amidst all the trial, amidst all the difficulty of, of work, the difficulty of divorce, the difficulty of sick children, someone dying, the difficulty of relational strain, of bitterness, in a place there, you can sit and just go, oh, God, this is hard. But you're with me. Let me see you. Remind me again of your goodness. Remind me again of the stories of faithfulness. I, I put my eyes to you. And you slowly allow joy to sink into your heart. You know, the word symmetrical means the same as, something symmetrical on both sides. The word asymmetric means not the same on both sides. The word symptomatic means you show symptoms. The word asymptomatic with the, with the prefix A means you don't show symptoms. The word muse means to think. The word amuse means not to think. That's why you have amusement parks, not to think parks. <laughs> our, our, our lives are just spent by the great uh, advertising world. I did marketing um, at Varsity, and our major goal was you just got to be able to change people's perceptions. You got to be able to draw people's attention into something. And we just get amused and amused and amused and amused and amused not to think, not to think, not to think, not to think, and think about other stuff. And our minds can just get slowly wasted away. And I find it so easy just to let my mind just go. But there's a place where Sarah considered him. She applied her thinking. Where even amongst trials, she'd say, I'm going to have joy. Even when, when we feel people have hurt us or said stuff about us, the place where we still look at him and say, you are the joyful one. And there's something of power in God's joyfulness. I remember a story um, years ago. I was at a church, uh, church on Main, and uh, it was at a student's digs back in then. Student's digs, I remember that. I'm feeling a bit older now. And um, there were probably about 20 of us sitting in a room, and we were worshiping. And um, there was a, a young guy on the other side of the room, and they prayed for him, and the Spirit of God came out of him, and he collapsed on the ground. And I remember looking at him. Uh, in my life, from my, my weird Buddhist background, I've had some demonic things happen. Um, and so I recognized some things in the spiritual realm around the demonic. Um, and I looked at this kid, and he was just lying there still with his head propped up against the kitchen counter. And I was like, something just looks kind of weird. 
So I, after everyone had left around, I went up to this young guy, and I, I sat next to him, I put my hand on him, and I just prayed for the Holy Spirit's power to come on him, and God's presence to come on him. And then I was, as I looked at him, he opened his eyes, and it was white. <laughs> and he started banging his head against the kitchen counter, going, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, oh my God. I mean, I was trying to be brave, like, oh yeah, I know what's going on here, you know, out in Jesus' name. But I was freaking out. I was like, oh my gosh, like, what do you do? Like, looking around as a young student, like, kind of desperate, you know, I, I haven't encountered this, I don't know what to do, what's the approach, you know, you're supposed to like shout the thing, hit the guy over the head with a Bible, I don't know. I know the more sophisticated Christians would know exactly what to do, you know, but I remember in that moment going, I'm like, I've got no idea what to do, and it's live, and it's happening right in front of me. So I close my eyes, and I look up. I'm like, Father, and what I see is God as my father reaching down, picking up an American football, and the, the, the first original Superman, Superman picks up American football, throws it to these guys like 50 meters away, but he's so strong, it just pellets like 500 miles away. And I saw God pick up... Uh, this American football and just launch it and he was laughing and laughing and laughing as he did it and I realized the disposition of his heart during that moment wasn't one of fear but it was one of victory his his mind wasn't one of anxiety and disconnect from what to do his mind was full of faith and laughter and joy because he knew exactly what to do and in that moment I lied my heart with his heart in that place, my mind began to gain the faith that the father had. So I looked at the young man. I just said, Father, your joy, release it through him. The kingdom of God comes with joy, righteousness, and peace. I know we sometimes think of peace as this meek and mild thing, but it says, who will come and crush Satan? The prince of power? The prince of fire? It's the prince of peace will soon crush Satan. The peace of Jesus, in and of itself, has got power to crush the works of the devil. And so when the Bible says that joy, righteousness, and peace, and the kingdom of God comes with joy, right, and peace, even the joy of the Lord can bring freedom to people. James chapter 1 says this beautiful line. It says, my brothers and sisters, consider yourself joyful. Consider it all joy when you face all kinds of trials. For you know that when your faith succeeds in facing such trials, the result is the ability to endure Make sure your endurance carries you all the way without failing, that you might be complete and mature, lacking nothing. There's a sense where the Father goes, even during the trial, there's a joy that He can release inside of us that gives us victory in the situation, where the disposition of a heart is linked to the Father's heart that gives us faith in that moment to speak what He speaks. And can you see that it's so important, not about the outcome, get out, demon, get out, demon. It's looking at the Father, seeing what He sees and reacting in alignment with Him. And so... This demonic thing came out of the kid, and I was like, woohoo! And it was silence for about five seconds, and then he opened his eye again, and it was white. And I thought, oh my gosh, I really hope it's not the same demon, and it's the second demon. Um, and so we cast the second one out, and it came out, and this young man came to peace. I saw him many years later, and he said it was one of the hallmark moments of, of his life where the peace of God entered him. Something of the Father's joy brings breakthrough in moments of trial. There's a place where there's joy even amidst the trial. I want to pray for us quickly. Not because we're ending, just because we get to as Christians. Father, I just want to pray that in any place where there's been anxiety, in any place where there's been anxiety, 
over anyone in this room where there's been depression, where there's been suicidal thinking. Holy Spirit, would you come with power right now? Would you come with your presence and your power to uproot every single one of those things that you establish joy, you establish peace right now in every area that was a place of defeats, would you bring your peace right now? Would you replace joy? I pray specifically for people that have anxiety or obsessive thinking, brokenness in their mind. Father, you make them the most joyful people on this planet because it's your good pleasure. Amen. Okay, last points. We're almost there. With lots of time to spare, so lots of coffee or lots of prayer. Depends which way you want to go. So the, the final thoughts, probably one of my favorite things that I love about the Father is that he's so bold in the impossible that when things look really, really bad, he looks really, really good. Um, he's not scared of the clock hitting midnight. He's not scared of Cinderella's coach turning into a pumpkin. Uh, he's not scared of Lazarus being dead for three days and calling him out. He's not scared of Moses being stuck with the Red Sea with the Israelites and the Egyptian army on the other side. He's not scared of telling the Israelites to cross the Jordan during flood time. It's during the impossible that the Father is often most glorified. And so we even have it in the situation with, with Abraham. We'll read that scripture. Let's try that again. We'll read that scripture. Oh, Lord, would you move that thing? Okay. Well, what it does say, you, you let me know when it comes up. Blue. Great. So there must be the sign. What the scripture says is that it emphasizes that Abraham was past 100 years old. You can just give me a thumbs up when it comes up. Um, when Abraham, it speaks of, oh, there we go. It speaks about Abraham being 100 years old. One before that. There we go. He's 100 years old. He's reached old age, yet I've born him a son in his old age. Like, oh, everything's going to pass. It's not possible anymore. The time is gone. I can't, it's not going to happen. Disappointment, disillusionment, hopelessness. In Hebrews 11, we even hear Sarah saying, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past childbearing age. It's hopeless. It's gone. It's impossible. Can I say that sometimes... God doesn't mind waiting for things to become so incredibly difficult and so incredibly hard that it feels like he's failed. Because it's in those times that you become weak. And there's uh, two types of sorrow. There's a sorrow that leads to death and there's a sorrow that leads to life. There's a weakness that leads to anxiety, but there's a weakness that leads to the establishment of his strength. Some of the most profound moments of my life has happened during the deepest, darkest, most anguish-filled moments of my life. I'm currently going through probably the, the, the somewhere in the top five uh, most difficult times of my life. It's painful. It's been years. And I often preachers will want to preach a story of victory 
They want to preach a story of, oh, it's imp- God can do the impossible. God is amazing. Uh, you know, like, you go here and God goes there. And all you hear are the victory songs. And you hear the great cries of how amazing everything is. But you don't hear the pain behind the story. You don't hear Mary and Martha weeping because Lazarus has died. You don't hear the Egyptians complaining and Moses complaining, saying, God, have you left us here to die? You don't hear those stories. But the Father does. He's so interested in you more than he is interested in the outcome. Because he wants to establish you for the long term. I always wonder what happened to Sarah. <laughs> when you read Sarah in the beginning, chapter 17, chapter 18, she basically has no belief. She's got unbelief. She's got like nothing. So does, so does Abraham. But when you read her in Hebrews 11, you know, centuries later, she sounds like this hardcore evangelist, you know, like I had faith and I had power to conceive. And you go, what happened between? You know, how did she go from being this like pathetically... Um, faithless person to this powerhouse established in the hall of fame in Hebrews 11 of one of the mightiest women of faith. Uh, you know where, 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 it, where it happens? It happens between chapter 18 and t- chapter 21. Dave spoke about it last week. Just before, just before they actually give birth, God comes and says, you will have a child in one year's time. Just before that, he has the encounter with Abimelech. And God closes the womb of the entire household of Abimelech. Not a single person in the house of Abimelech can have a child. And God says to Abraham, you're going to bring healing to them. Abimelech repents, comes to Abraham and says, pray for me. Abraham prays. God honors the prayer. And in the very area of Abraham's defeat, God gives other people victory. Not just one person, but an entire household doesn't say, we don't know how big his house was, it could have been a couple of hundred, but a couple of hundred suddenly were able to bear children again. And you can imagine during that short period of time, faith entered Sarah's heart. Why? Because she established herself in looking at something that the father did. Last story. I love stories. The reason why I love stories is because the Bible says what's the mighty deeds that the father has done, proclaim it from the rooftops. The mighty deeds that the Father's done pass it from generation to generation. And so we share stories because it stirs faith, but we share stories because he becomes greater and we become less. He becomes more, we, re- we recede into the background. Prepare the way for the Lord. We lift our hearts and our gaze to him when we hear the testimonies of his power. My uncle, I had an uncle, um, my, mother, my mother's younger brother. My mother died when I was young, and I always sensed that the one thing she really wanted was for her youngest brother, and a family to come and know Jesus. And my, my, my uncle was a, an ardent Buddhist, strong, strong, solid Buddhist. And um, when I was a, a youngster, maybe like a, a late teens, I had a dream of, of this chasm being, being between him and his wife and his daughter, and he couldn't get across, but I was young, so he didn't really know what you're doing. So I told him, I had this dream um, over breakfast, and he said, yeah, we're getting, we're getting separated and then divorced is what he told me. Um, and I, I left it at that, and they got separated, they got divorced over a period of several years, and he became bitter, angry, resentful, isolated, cynical, unproductive. And um, I would still phone him once a month for an hour, hour or two, once or twice a month, just to keep in touch and 
just a lot of um, negative vitriolic that would just come from his mouth and just a heavy, heavy time and always trying to find a gap where maybe Jesus would be able to bring life and it didn't really happen. Um, eventually he was in and out of hospital and a couple of years ago, um, a Monday afternoon, got a phone call from my cousin saying, it's actually worse than we thought. Your uncle, the uncle's probably got a couple of days, maybe a week max. You've got to come up and see him. So immediately I started fasting, saying, Father, I'm going to fast until he, he comes to know you. I'm going to fast until he dies, or one or the other. So we started fasting on the Monday, flew up there on Tuesday, and I was trying to find a gap to tell him about Jesus. You know, I'm passionate about Jesus. I'm more passionate about him, because I love him, and he loves us. And his highest call isn't that we move in miracles. His highest call isn't that you succeed in business. His highest call isn't that you become a great person in work. His highest call isn't any other stuff or that you become a righteous person. His highest call is that you become a son and a daughter that knows that he's the father that loves you. And out of that place, you love him. We love God because he first loved us, is what the Bible says. And then he gives the command, love other people, do likewise. Love other people. So that place is my deepest desire for my, my, my uncle. I never understood healing at that stage, although I probably would have tried to pray for him. But I did understand the father's heart. And I was trying to find a gap on that Tuesday afternoon to, to tell him about Jesus, but there's just people coming in and out of the hospital. Eventually, on the Wednesday, I said to, it was a bit of a lull, and I said, Catherine, just keep everyone outside the room. I just need to speak to him. And so Catherine, I suppose, distracted them. And um, I, I bent over and I said to my uncle, he was pretty darn emaciated at this stage, could hardly speak um, in and out of, of awakeness. And I, I woke him up and I said, Uncle, I know that you're now towards the end of your life. And we've spoken about Jesus. Have you thought about maybe changing your thinking and receiving Jesus? And he said to me, Roger, I grew up a Buddhist. I was born a Buddhist. I will die a Buddhist. I know it's not what you want to hear, but that's who I am. And he turned from me and carried on looking at the ceiling. My heart just dropped. I felt like a ton of bricks had, had fallen on me. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, he's still as hard as ever. And then he started babbling on about how my mother vibrated at a high energy frequency and my grandmother vibrated at this high energy frequency. And in that moment, I felt God's spirit desire him. And the power of God desiring him. And this little spark of a thought came. And I said to him, hey, uncle, do you know that Jesus vibrates at the highest power? He is the highest vibration. He is the highest energy. He created the highest powers. He is the power above all powers. He is the one who is supreme. He is the one that is glorious. He is the one that makes all those things. And my uncle like, turned and looked at me. And there was a bit of a tension. And I said to him, you've had years of bitterness and anger and frustration and inward-lookingness. And the Bible calls that sin. And when Jesus came, and this is literally what I said to him, he did a thing called the great exchange. He took all your rubbish, all your sin, all your anger, all your frustration, all your bitterness, and he put inside of you his new nature. He put inside of you joy. He put inside of you holiness. He put inside of you patience. He put inside of you love. He put inside of you tenderness. I told him about the love of the Father toward him, that is always for him. And then it came to that awkward moment when you've told him about Jesus. You've told him what Jesus has done. And I said to him, do you want Jesus? And he looked at me and said, yes, yes. 
So I said, well, let's pray together. So my uncle and I prayed together. We did a repeat after me prayer. Father, thank you that you love me. Father, thank you that you're for me. Thank you that you take away all the rubbish of my life, all the self-inward-lookingness of my life, and I give it to you, and I take and exchange your righteousness, your holiness, your kindness, your tenderness, your faithfulness. I take that, and I receive that, Jesus. I take resurrection life. I come, and I trust my life to you, Father. As he prayed that prayer, tears began to roll down his, his cheeks. And he opened his eyes, and he said, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I said to him, Uncle, what, are you, what have you experienced? Because he had experienced something. And he just said, I'm warm, I'm warm, I'm warm, I'm warm. He felt the warmth of the Father's presence coming over his body. Four days later, his daughter that he hadn't spoken to for five, six years decided to come to his bed and reconcile. And a day later, he died. It's never too late. Even when the situation feels dead, whatever it is, relationships that's broken, business that seems in difficulty, job that seems on the rocks, anxiety in the mind, illness in the body, there's a timing. You'll note in, in, in the next slide it says that Sarah received power to conceive. There was a timing of the power. God could have done it in the beginning, 25 years when he said, you're going to have a child. Boom, he could have given the power. Sometimes God's power has a, a timing element to it. Sometimes he gives us power for the moment. Sometimes he gives us power to endure for the moment that he wants us to. And so... We're going to go into time of ministry in the next while. And before we get there, we're going to, we are going to pray for a place where people can receive power for the moment that they have. We're also going to receive power to be able to endure through the moment that they have. But I do want to give a moment to you. If you don't know Jesus, you might have been sitting here as a visitor for the first time and going, I've never known Jesus, as, as you've heard this morning. And you think... I actually want to know Jesus. I'm going to give you a gap to pray the same prayer my, my uncle prayed. You might have been in church for years and been coming and going, and actually you realize you sit here and going, I've never actually done the great exchange. I've never said, Jesus, take all my rubbish, take all my sin of my life, take all my self-centeredness and give me your righteousness and your holiness. In about five seconds, I'm going to give you a gap. It's a bold thing, but, but he's a bold father. Uh, I'm going to give you a gap just to put your hands up. I'm not to embarrass you, but to be able to agree with you. And you, you might feel a thumping in your chest, and I'm going, oh my gosh, that's me, that's me. That's me, like, I'm, I'm that person. And that's okay, because that's often the Spirit of God that just pushes on your heart to say, I want you, you're my son, you're my daughter. So if that's you, you're the person that's saying, Flip, this is the first time I actually want to give all my, my own stuff it doesn't have to be hectic, you know, like, oh, bitterness and rage. All my own stuff, all the stuff of, of self-centeredness, of me stuff, all that sin and all that stuff, I want to give over to you, Jesus. And I want your nature. I want your kindness, your goodness. I want to, I want to know God is my Father. If that's you, could you raise your hand? 
I'm really good in the awkward silence. My little boy says he's hungry. There's a, there's a beautiful thing where there's a hungering that the Father puts inside of us. There's a hungering that the Father puts inside of us. And I think at all places, no matter where you are, allow yourself to hunger. It's one of the most beautiful things. He who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, he or she will be filled. Great. If you still want to come, if you still at the end of this want to receive Jesus, and you still want to, please come and speak to me. It's my, it's my highest pleasure. I'd love to pray with you. Um, we're going to open up the space. I think if the band could come up, that would be great. I'm going to open up the space, and uh, we're going to pray for God's presence and his power um, to come into this place. So you're welcome to stand. Just maybe put out your hand as a your, your hands like a posture of like getting a gift. You don't have to. There's no formula or rhythm. Uh, God isn't defined by that. But it, often just posturing helps. And you just close your eyes. And you put your eyes on Him, and you can just pray the simple prayer. Holy Spirit, would you come in with power and fire? Holy Spirit, come in me with power and fire. I choose to consider you who is faithful. I choose to consider you who is faithful. Holy Spirit, would you come on me to draw me closer into the Father's presence? Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you would come with power right through this place. That you come with power right through this place. That there's a weightiness of your glory that would come. So early on in, in the middle section, both left and right, the presence and the power of God just descending and beginning to push upon us. You might just begin to feel His presence push upon you in the middle section. More, more, more. I'm not praying for more of Him. I'm praying for more of a revelation in our hearts of Him. The Bible says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts are enlightened that you might know the call to which is called you, the inheritance in the saints and the power for those who believe. And that power is like the mighty strength which God exerted in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms, far above every title, dominion, name, and age, in this age or the age to come. Holy Spirit, come with your power and your presence right now. Gentle Holy Spirit, gentle, gentle Holy Spirit. Even now you might begin to be, feel him just begin to mark things on your life, things that you've suppressed for ages, that you haven't had the strength or the courage to address and look at. 
And right now, He wants to bring freedom to that area. That area where you've needed God, saying, God, I needed that promise, saying, look, He's saying, look to me. Look to me. for a while and then we're going to open the space just for some ministry up in the front.